Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness and current events all through the lens of faith. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Science of the Times. We have an interesting topic today. We are talking about the latest thing that has come out into the world, chat GTP. In our March issue, we had an article by Eddie who was joining us today called Chatbot, Your Limitless Friend. So welcome to the show today, Eddie. Hi, Zanita. Nice to be on the show as well. <laughs> and welcome, Jesse, as well. It's also good oh, to thanks, have you. Yeah. Good, good, good to be here. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eddie, before we jump into things, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're located, and what fascinates you about ChatGTP? So just a little correction, Zanita. It's ChatGPT, <laughs> not Jet. Not chat GTP. (laughs) So about myself, I'm Eddie. I'm originally from Romania. I moved in Australia about five years ago. And at the moment, I work as a nurse for Tweed Hospital. What fascinated me about chat GPT was essentially trying it out and seeing the the consequences that's going to have on the world. So I I was always interested in, in the domain I I have a big background in, in business and I, I tried a few different tools of automatization before, but, you know, we, we all kind of know how bad they are, whether it's Google Home or Siri, we have to tell them pretty, three, four times to, to do a simple thing like turning turning up the volume. When I first tried it out, I probably experienced exactly the same as, as so many others, hence why it already reached, you know, 100 million. You know, I started to ask simple questions like like somebody would ask, Google. And then I started to experiment with, with things that are a little bit more complicated, like, like asking it to develop a travel program or to give me design ideas for, for a room or, and so on until at one point I started moving towards really meta and funny suggestions, like asking it to write a letter to the humanity from the perspective of the, of the tree in the garden of Eden or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it wrote this beautiful letter with advices and yeah, it was, yeah, it's, it, it's incredible. Mm. Yeah. I overheard you telling someone, oh, I planned my trip away on chat. And I was like, what? Like, I haven't even heard about this. I just heard people kind of freaking out about it and worrying about how it's going to impact wars in the future and things. Have you heard of other creative uses that people, I've also seen people take a photo of their fridge and chat will, um, tell them what they can make out of what's in their fridge and then give them recipes. So there are cool uses for it. Have you heard of any others? I actually have a, an awesome use for traveling. So let's say that you are going in a, in a, in a different country. Well, I, I can use in this case, you know, for example, Morocco. So what I'm doing is I'm using the prompt act as, and then you say act as a, a person walking the streets of Marrakesh during the day. Describe the colors, the textures, the facades of the buildings. Tell me the noises that, that I hear. The Give quotes from the, from the persons walking next to me in different languages. Tell me, you know, what you see in the bazaar, the spices and so on. Anyway, this one comes up with the most beautiful description. It's almost, it almost feels like you are reading a book describing the location. And it's actually an awesome way to, to insert yourself into a different country because it actually works as the perfect tour guide. But apart from that, creative uses are are many. You just need to be precise with your prompts and 
tell the tell the child to, to act as a you know tutor or art teacher poet whatever whatever you you want yeah mm. I, I saw a video recently by the YouTuber Tom Scott who was talking about how he used it to write code and the way that he, he broke apart the process that he would have gone to write the same code, he began to realize that this AI is making some of the same almost human mistakes that he would have <laughs> made in, in developing this code. And so I think it's interesting that in some ways, like it's comforting that ChatGPT is not just perfect, but also because of the fact that it's becoming more human-like, it's also a little more terrifying in yeah, a way. Yeah. It's 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 bizarre. Yeah, and exactly on the same on the same tone tone, I, I found it quite funny how sometimes the chat is convinced that it's not wrong. So for example, <laughs> you say uh, two plus two equals four. The chat is convinced that it's equal five. And then you're trying to argue with it. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, I know for a fact it's four. And the chat is like, sorry, you must be mistaken. I'm quite certain it's five. <laughs> That's so funny. And I think as people are listening to this, they're going, they're, we're starting to almost feel like this is, this is sci-fi. This is like what happens in films and movie. This is not like real life so it almost feels like as well this has just kind of exploded out of nowhere like this year it, it feels like that this has just kind of happened and and everybody's kind of been taken by storm but has this been a development process for things like chat gpt like you know for instance ai art generators has this been going on for a while or is this like a very recent trend yeah, so I was actually reading an interview with Bill Gates in which he was describing the elements in, in the history of technology that, that actually changed the world. And he gave as an example that probably the, the main pillars were, you know, the personal computer, the graphics use, user face. So the fact that you can actually use a mouse and write with the keyboard and then you see it on the screen. Then you probably had, you know, the iPhone. But the next big generation is AI. So this idea... This has actually been has actually begun pretty more than ten years ago. So it th there was always a dream of creating an artificial brain using things that actually sound like a brain. They are called neural networks. So they are trying to imitate you know the brain through the use of internet and different technologies that imitate different processes. So for example, in terms of OpenAI and ChatGPT, this one was actually started about seven years ago. And the whole idea is they wanted to create a language synthesizer. You input a very large amount of, of information to it. And then what it does, it, it just predicts what's the most likely word or phrase uh, that needs to come after the, after, after the context. And then but yeah, based on, based on your tone that you're using. So it's, yeah, anyway, it's, it, it's a, it's been in development for many years. <laughs> yeah, but it's only just sort of like now like become a conscious in the in the I guess the public eye. I guess it's more of a comment or a a, a thought around the societal impact that this is happening, the fact that for so long it's kind of been in development perhaps, you know, in the background, but now it's just like, oh, oh, wow, this is this is here and yeah, oh, yeah. what's it going to do? Like I don't know how to deal with this sort of thing. Yeah, we until now, we've only seen it in games, in things like chess, in that, that they would use AI to 
have the computer play chess against itself so that it can train itself to become a specialist. But now to actually use words instead of numbers, that's the most massive development. I guess we've seen it in films like, you know, there was almost like 10 years ago now, there was films like Her and there was films like Ex Machina, which you mentioned in the article you wrote. So it's like this idea of robots and technology having emotions and being able to communicate like another human. That's not necessarily new either. Like we've seen that, but I guess the difference is now that it's like we're actually seeing it in our own lives and we're like, oh, this is actually reality. We're not just watching movies about robots and technology. Yeah, yeah. Actually, was I started looking throughout history and I saw so many examples of creations that humans did to help them out. In Greek mythology, you, you know, you had Pinocchio, you had Frankenstein's monster. It was fascinating to see how, how much humans wanted to be creators themselves and to have, yeah, to inanimate objects. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like the the impulse to play god if it's not like actually sentient life at least it kind of looks a little bit and sounds a little bit yeah yeah feels a little bit like sentient life yeah yeah 100 percent. so let's talk a little bit about the real world ramifications and there's a quote that you talk about by everybody's favorite dictator right now vladimir putin and he has something very interesting to say about ai when it comes to ruling the world perhaps that article was actually from 2017 just just to realize how how long the big powers knew that ai is going to become massive he was quoting in that article that the the wars of the future are going to be held with drones and then you know both countries would have both countries at war would have a set of drones they would fight against each other and the ones that will still have drones at the end surviving they're going to win and the others the only thing they can do is just surrender. So anything to do with, uh, you know, taking the humans out of the picture and using artificial intelligence for modern weapons, for, yeah, potentially so so society control. Who knows, maybe in the future we'll have a, a judge that's a computer. Well, there are actually, they have actually done like studies or experiments showing that AI juries are better at like knowing whether someone is, guilty or not based on a number of things that we aren't good at so like we might think someone is guilty based on certain things but artificial intelligence is better at knowing whether someone actually is or not like the percentages are higher that they are right over us which is pretty crazy so artificial intelligence is already kind of being used in like the law system mm. and yeah pray, pray that that's the, the scariest part because until now if you're dealing with a human even he, if he's intrinsically evil you can still sort of see a bit of humanity you can still still see even in the eyes of a of an evil judge you can see a little bit of compassion understanding at least how you know how they have just destroyed the family or or that that person is hurting and so on but when you have a, a neutral impartial judge that that can't, can't even understand you know human feelings and just gives life sentences yeah it's it's quite quite scary to think of <laughs> i think i think this is probably a good segue to talk about bias because obviously we know that humans have bias humans are prejudiced in different ways and so there's this idea that well ai must not be prejudiced or biased in any way it must be perfectly impartial perfectly neutral but i i'm just curious whether on your thoughts on this are ai truly 
neutral? Uh, are they impartial or are they biased in any way? Well, this one sort of has the bias in its name. So because, uh, you know, the chat GPT is actually, it's called a large language model. So it inputs information, sorry, it outputs information based on what language you put in. So if you train it on a, on a data set that has, you know, political leaning or it has, you know, let's say flawed information, a flawed history le lesson, this is exactly what's going to output. Yeah. So, and it, it's, I, I actually noticed when I, when I started to, to type and you see the text appearing, that it almost feels magical and you, you tend to believe more what it says because it's so neat and nice. And until now, we, we almost developed sort of a, a wisdom of the internet. We can know which website provides more accurate information based on how well it looks. You see, you know, The Guardian or New York Times or something, you say like, all right, these guys are at least a little bit more th thorough with their information. And then you see a blog and then you say like, all right, yeah, these guys probably are not really serious. But when everything looks neat and beautiful, like in a chat, yeah, this, this would be a, a danger that I would see. Mm. Do you think that AI has the potential to like become a bit more emotionally intelligent? We know it as like something that gives us information. And I've also heard of like AI starting to be able to like help with mental health problems because they can pick up on cues that other people like can't pick up on. Like, do you think it'll ever get to the point where we're actually dealing with emotional robots? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, so my perspective on on open on artificial intelligence is mostly towards the positive. I probably stand at, I don't know, like 60% positive and 40% negative. So I, I reckon a hundred percent it would. So what's interesting about this technology and, and why it's revolutionary is because it's made to for people to experiment with. The reason why the iPhone was so, revolu so revolutionary or the computer or the internet is because it was a blank canvas. So it was just allowing people to come up with apps and, you know, different uses. It's almost like you're putting all the information in, in a jar and then you start shuffling it and then you allow the, you know, the people to decide what's, what the technology is going to become. So obviously as, as, as humans are so emotional and they love, you know, this, you know, human language, I reckon somebody is going to, is going to use it in the same way. What about true sentience? And I know that's like a very loaded term, but I mean, the the very crude example that I jump to is iRobot, the film, not the, you know, Isaac Asimov novel necessarily, where you have an AI that is main directive is to protect humanity. And then she decides that, you know, the best way to protect humanity is to become a, like a tyrannical overlord dictator and restrict everything that humans are doing and to kill all their leaders and to, you know, shut down the cities. Like that's, that's in some ways the, the scary mm. part of sentience. But do you think that we're getting to a point where AI will be able to develop its own set of moral codes outside of the inputs that humans put into them you can you can actually see how how complex the human brain is compared to a computer based on how much of a struggle you know billions and billions billions of computers working at the same time just to imitate a glimpse of the human brain so in terms of 
uh, coming up with its own morals. Three, the, the glimpses that I saw were, for example, from chess, in which this technology that, that I was talking about before started using techniques that humans have, have not used previously. And before, a computer would, would learn from humans. Now humans learn from a computer. In terms of like sentience, probably we can imitate it in, in some ways. You know that Turing test, the text, the, the, the test that you take in which you have a conversation with a computer and the computer has to prove that he's human. And you, uh, let's say if you do the test for a human and a computer, a blind test, a computer has passed the Turing test if, you, if, it, if, it, if it can actually fool you and you believe that you know, it's a human instead. Probably there will be a lot of computers that can pass the Turing test, but whether they actually are, say, sentient, that's a different story. Yeah. So maybe it's that computers might be able to find a way to look and feel sentient without actually being sentient, because it sounds like what you're saying is that in some ways, AI is limited by the hardware that we're able to produce to be able to create the processes necessary to create sentience or to at least imitate sentience on the level of, as you say, a human brain? Yeah, yeah. So uh, working in healthcare, I started noticing a few patterns of the way humans think, for example, in people that are that have dementia. So you'd see that, for example, they, the, uh, you know, thinking works through pattern recognition and works in almost like a cycle. So you say you start a subject and then you see how the brain associates the, the information one after each other. And then you have, uh, you know, you have people stuck in a, in a, in a circle of, of, of conversation. So you see a little bit of that imitation in, even in chat GPT, how it tries to exactly how neurons are trying to connect with each other and connect it with different information. ChatGPT also tries to connect what you're telling with all the information that it received, all the inputs, and then it tries to come up with, with, with new information. So yeah, it, it can imitate at the moment, but yeah, who knows? We are, we are so early. It's, it's crazy to think that this one, this one was la- launched just, you know, probably two months ago and it already had such an impact and yeah. It almost almost feels like generation 10 or something. <laughs> yeah, and it's only generation one. <laughs> Have you seen and, the, the... Oh, sorry for interrupting. No, Have you seen the recent launch of the Copilot by Microsoft? What is it? So essentially, you know, they, they integrated chat in Bing, which is their search engine. So it, it's exactly like ChatGPT, but it uses the internet. But now that, now that, now you'll be able to use, you know, the Copilot, the, sorry, the, you can use ChatGPT using your normal apps as well. So PowerPoint, Word and Excel and so on, and email. So you can actually now prompt it to create PowerPoint presentations based on a Word document that you have, or you can create a Word document based on a PowerPoint or write notes in a meeting. And then you can ask, like, can you please summarize? Can you... Uh, tell me what they're discussing. What are the main elements that came up with the discussion? Yeah, it's, even even this this sort of mind blowing. Every minister that's listening to this is going to be rubbing their yeah. hands together, going, "Finally, creating the PowerPoints, the most annoying part of the sermon." Yeah. <laughs> I, I've actually used it to to write Bible studies as well. 
Wow. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. Wow. Uh, well, it speaks all the languages. So you can. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I noticed that if you if you feed it up to three tweets, it will write a New York Times piece that is either optimistic or neutral, either left-winged or right-winged, either comedic. Like, it can literally be whatever you want. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, on, on that, let's talk about the world of jobs and academia and all of the fields that, you know, everybody's worried about. What do you think, I mean, obviously we're very early days yet, so this is maybe a, more of a hot takes sort of session, but what do you think are going to be the impacts of AI in the the jobs that, you know, most people can think of, you know, whether it's in teaching or schools or, you know, writing or whatever? Yeah, I, I would start with the positive. I think the biggest impact and most po positive impact is going to have in is going to be in, in education. So I saw, I saw a set of images that would compare things that were in a, in a certain way, a hundred years ago compared to now. So it would show a picture of a horse and then now you have a car. It would show, I don't know, the picture of a phone and, or a telegraph. And then now you have an amazing new phone. And then it showed a picture of an ancient classroom and then it compared it, compared it with the classroom from now. And you could almost argue that the classroom from the ancient times was better because it was in a theater and, you know, you had a, a tutor, you had, a, you know, somebody that you could follow. And now in, in our modern world, everything seems really, really, you know, kind of ancient in style. So um, I would say it would have a positive impact because you can, you can have a a personal tutor. It's almost like you're reading a book and you can ask the book on every phrase what exactly it means. And yeah, it, I, I think that it would, it could help democratize teaching. It could help people that don't have access to, to funds to not only, uh, you know, be able to ask questions, but be able. To, so this model is actually able to change its style and tone and complexity of language based on almost based on people's personality or, or level of knowledge. So you can explain to me like I'm five years old or explain to me in a, a grade 10 language level. So I, I reckon in, in teaching would be, it'd be a, a great aid for the teachers as, as long as, as they, they use it in a creative way. And humans have de demonstrated that they're always creative with with new technologies. So the positives are probably to eliminate a lot of the mindless tasks. I remember when I was writing my thesis, probably 90% of my, my time was spent finding information and then editing it. And then only 10% was the creative part. So it'd be amazing if we could eliminate, you know, editing all the, all the spaces in a document and yeah, getting accurate information and so on. Negatives could be the fact that whether now you can still survive without using technology, potentially in the future, you know, you, you might not be able to, you might need to be a little bit savvy. So it gets yeah, awful for, for so many people that are, you know, maybe they don't identify with technology. They want to live in nature or, or, you know, they're just not prepared for that. Yeah, it's an interesting idea that the thought of not being able to live without technology. 
it's not really something I've thought about, but I, I think a lot of people are kind of concerned about chat because they think we're going to learn or we're going to lose our critical thinking skills and our problem like solving skills and like what's going to happen to like when we educate kids, what are we educating them to do or to be if they can just get information at the touch of their fingertips? Mm. Yeah, and, and maybe maybe there is almost like a ritualistic uh, aspect to finding information from books, going to a library, opening a book, opening another book, reading both, thinking, compared to if somebody just gives you on a platter the answer, beautifully packaged, neat and correct, make, make, makes you feel smart straight away. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am interested as well into the question of plagiarism and academic integrity as well, because there seems to be a rise in people using chat GPT or OpenAI to help them write their essays, their their school assignments. I just saw a TikTok video the other day where a professor literally tears a new one to half of his class for turning in an essay and having found out that chat GPT was used to help write the essays that half, half of the essays that he had submitted for that particular assignment. So what's your take on on that as far as the student side of things? Yeah, maybe uh, maybe they can have two parts of class, the, the ChatGPT aided class and the non-ChatGPT aided class. <laughs> <laughs> you leave your phone outside, you, you learn, and in the other one you say like, all right, all right, you can use it as your collaborator and then you can just edit the, the final material. <laughs> what, what do you think? Well, for me, I guess it kind of goes along with what you were saying where, you know, if you're just being handed information on a silver platter, then are you really retaining that information? But I think there's also other issues in our education system that are not related to AI. You know, when I was going through my university degree, a lot of what I was doing was just rote learning, you know, making sure that I had enough information in my head the day before the exam so that then I could blurt it all out onto the page and then promptly forget about it all so that I could fit new information in there for the next next exam further on. And, you know, maybe that was just a problem with the way that I was learning or a problem with my particular course or whatever the case may be. But I also do think that we're all we're part of the way there because there are certain you know, exams in university degrees today where you can take in a calculator or you can take in a page of notes or you can take in a, ref a reference sheet or something like that to help you. So, you know, I, I think that maybe, maybe we need to have more conversations around being able to remember all of the detailed information, whether that's really something that we should be grading kids on or young adults on, whether that's a good thing or not. But Again, I feel like I'm saying this a lot in this conversation, way above my pay grade. <laughs> it is interesting though, thinking about like how education will be changed from this, because I remember in primary school as well, in math class and things, teachers saying like, you can't carry a calculator around everywhere. And I'm like, <laughs> well, like now I do, like it's on my phone, it's on my watch, like I don't know why I needed to sit down and learn. <laughs> and so it's true. Like, you know, back in the day, they didn't think we would have these kind of things. And now it's almost like, well, do we really need to remember all this? Or should we be learning more like reasoning skills or critical thinking or like different kinds of skills that maybe haven't really been focused on a lot in the past? Yeah, it sometimes feels like 
uh, I mean, at least it was it was feeling for me that you'd go for to school, you'd spend eight hours there, and you'd learn something that you could have learned in half an hour. And I, I just wish that they would have just given us, you know, an interesting summary, and then we can spend the time learning how to think or be creative or I don't know, learn how to have conversations or I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to some teachers the other day here in New South Wales in Australia, and they were talking about how the big shift in our area is now about just raw data, just knowledge. And we're moving away from what was the big thing once upon a time, which is soft skills, you know, being able to have interpersonal relationships, how to work with people and and all those sorts of stuff. And it is quite interesting because I heard a university lecturer a number of years ago gave a talk at the local high school I was working at. And he said that when it comes to the workplace, you can have as much technical knowledge as you like in your given profession. But if you can't, if you don't have soft skills, AKA things that you can't just learn, you have to actually grow and develop as a person to be able to deal with difficult people, to be able to manage a team, to be able to you know, think laterally, it's only going to get you so far. And and I do, I do wonder if maybe the advancement of AI where you can have knowledge at your fingertips at any given point is going to reinforce the need to have those soft skills that maybe an AI can't just give you. Maybe being bombarded with so much technology at one point, every classroom is going to decide to to spend more time outside. Maybe we'll go back to to the to the ancient style of learning. Will will be you know probably when the metaverse would be developed or or when we'll actually have a brain in, interface with some sort of artificial intelligence. Maybe you go in your classroom, you plug yourself in, learn deeply <laughs> for a few hours and then afterwards you go and play in nature and develop those soft skills that you're talking about or just i don't know start playing with start climbing trees and <laughs> yeah. <with your> friends. <laughs> yeah i do love your optimism around ai and chat eddie i think it's why we had you on the show because yeah, we're hearing all sorts of negative things. I think like when you sent me that article where Putin said, whoever wins this hour race will be the ruler of the world. I was like, let's shut this thing down. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no way. But like you're saying, there are some really awesome things and inevitably it's going to happen. Like mm. Sam Altman is the CEO. If he doesn't like head it, someone else will. So yeah, I, I found this, this concept AI cannot be stopped. It's like a train that has been started and there is now an arms race who's going to develop develop it first. So the genie is out of the battle. So the only way we can actually deal with it is accept that it's going to happen and accept that we don't have control and just try to support the initiatives that make it the least evil and probably just find good uses in our in our daily life because you know on the internet there are so many dangers we could go to a, in a lot of you know evil pathways but there is also the internet is also magical if you'd show the technology that we have now to somebody a hundred years ago and you'd say like you can ask any question you, you can talk with the machine that can understand you you can see any street in the world on, on Google Street View, or I don't know, you, you can search any information, they would be mind blown. But you can see how much we have been burnt out by, by the internet, in which 
a technology like this comes about and we are so cynical and scared, probably because we got used with being betrayed by the creators and seeing how, you know, yeah, all right. You know, we had we had, we had high high expectations about social media or and social networks, but you now made it just a marketing ploy. We have the product. So you can see why people are so cynical. I suppose touching on that, you mentioned in your article that AI has created this set of commandments almost. you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so th those commandments weren't actually written by the creators of ChatGPT. It was actually just a prompt that I used, but essentially they were probably fed by the creators, probably in that large language model, they fed, you know, a set of ethical principles that it has to adhere to. So anyway, the, you know, amongst those principles you'd had to, to try to not be biased, to strive to give correct information, essentially not be evil. Whether the model actually follows all those principles, is a, it's a different thing, but at least, at least it's good that you have them. <laughs> they're, they're based on some sort of positive yeah. plan, planning. I, I guess it's just like the Bible gives us commandments but we don't necessarily follow them <laughs> like but the intentions are good like the intentions were there by the creators and so it's sort of the same thing the creators of mm. chat have put into the system i guess values <laughs> or yeah yeah i uh, there was a quote in in the article but it just didn't fit in the space in which one of the pioneers of the internet was saying something like the internet was once a place of a place of dreamers we were you know there was no idea of competing with each other everything was about open flow of information you know positivity collaboration and so on and compare it with how it changed nowadays in which you you know it's not it's exactly the opposite of the positive you know romantic view of the internet so probably the creator of chat gpt also is has been a, a dreamer has I, I don't think he has bad intention necessarily, but let's hope that that money or competition will not change that as well. The piece that I, I also want to just quickly ju jump on, and this is not so much about ChatGBT as it is about AI art, and I apologize if this is a little bit of a diversion, but we're seeing sort of, I feel like at the moment we're at the tail end of this big excitement about, oh, AI art is going to, you know, generate all this sort of amazing stuff. And oh no, there's going to be no future for artists anymore. Do you see this as something that's just going to eventually fall by the wayside? Is it going to get smarter, do you think? Is it going to kind of have to go away fundamentally because of the inherent legal and ethical issues that are involved in stealing works of art from all corners of the internet? What's your sort of take on that? Yeah, probably we'll always have AI art from now on. It's going to be a section in the museum, but I still think that human feelings are still essential. And you can see that in the museum, even if if the piece is, you know, modern art and it's hard to be understood, if it's something that actually impacted somebody, people are going to be emotionally touched by it. I actually was thinking what you were saying about um, humans wanting to become creators. You know, if we imagine, if we imagine a future of being being able to create everything with chat gpt yeah you can create you can give a prompt and create an image but very shortly we'll be able to to create websites we'll be able to create apps and then maybe in in a few years we'll, we'll be able to prompt 
to create a house. And you say like, can you please create a house in a Mediterranean style with this color walls and so on? And, and it just sends through the robots with exactly the proper materials and it builds you the house. So we'll, there is a chance we'll become almost like creators. I was just going to also quickly plug, if you haven't already had a look at the March issue of Signs of the Times magazine, I'm just holding it up in the video version, but the cover is an AI generated image of, so I inputted the Afghan girl, that famous National Geographic photo, but in the style of Vincent van Gogh. So wow. that's what this is. So if anybody has actually seen the cover and they've gone, I, what what's that all about? Then that that is what that's all about. Mm. Well, working in media, do you think that AI art could be copyrighted or should be copyrighted? <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. Because I know like at the moment, one of the big conversations is around art. Uh, these companies going to get sued successfully by artists from whom they're drawing their art from. Cause I mean, I guess you can't really copyright the style of Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, but you can maybe copy the style of Banksy or somebody who's currently alive or is owned by a company. And so I think it's interesting when you consider the fact that AI art is not generated in a vacuum, it is only generated from, again, like an AI chatbot, what we input it in. And the only limitation is our imagination. And in in the sense, it's much more like a, a search engine, I suppose. It's just that it's a search engine that can create something, which is very bizarre, a lot of fun. But if I was, I guess, I guess the major problem is if I was to go and try and sell this image that I created in Dali and try and get money for it. Number one, like, am I infringing on the copyright of the photographer who took the image of the Afghan girl for National Geographic? Or am I infringing on the work of Vincent van Gogh? Or, you know, if there's a Vincent van Gogh foundation out there or somebody who owns the copyright to... The, does somebody own the copyright to this style? I, d I don't know. But I guess... As with many things, at least from my take, it's like when you start to commoditize it, when you make it into a commodity and you try and make money off it, that's when things get really complicated. It seems like potentially because if if art galleries were to start using AI art instead of actual art, they would be saving a lot of money because art is expensive <laughs> like, and it's kind of like another one of those things where we're seeing more and more jobs kind of be replaced by artificial intelligence so in my mind I'm like does that mean that we're all going to have these jobs taken over by artificial intelligence and we're all going to have to go back to like trading and selling like <laughs> brick making and bread making and like like back to hundreds of years ago yeah, before we used to have master craftsmen, yeah. now master promptsmen. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's crazy what will come from it. This is probably something that we should have started with, but what does chat GPT actually stand for? It's you know? the word chat and then it's generative something performance. Wait. Generative performance technology or something like this. I, or 
Yeah, to be honest, I don't really know. It essentially <laughs> depends from the way it works with the okay. fact that uh, it, it, it uses billions of inputs to, to predict what's going to be the most likely continuation of a phrase or word or mm. and so on. Just, yeah, <laughs> that it generates that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jesse, did you have any more questions? Or Eddie, was there anything else you wanted to cover before we finish up? Are you gonna use ChatGPT for for the for the science of times editing? <laughs> <laughs> I actually I contacted someone to write an article the other day and they replied asking what our guidelines were on them using chat. And I was like, I don't know, that's not even a conversation we've had, but it is coming yeah. in like it is something that's yeah, we are gonna have to address, I suppose. But I think I think for us, the really interesting thing is around the editorial process because we have you know for our magazine we have very specific editorial parameters like you know we don't use the oxford comma or you know we don't use single quotes we use double quotes and so you know there are little bits and pieces like that we we hardly ever use exclamation points in our articles we we hardly ever cap like use a word in all caps um, we might change that to italics. So there are little bits and pieces where it's like, well, I, oh, maybe chat GPT could be really good at that. Or maybe an AI could be really good at helping us maintain our, you know, our, our editorial our style guide, I suppose. But then I can see that as being a slippery slope of, well, maybe I could get it to do this, or maybe I could get it to do that. And then at, at what point does it stop being an article written by Jesse or Eddie or Zanita, and at what point does it, it that we're importing other ideas from somebody else? And of course, we we do that already because I you know nobody has an original thought really. But at the same time, it's like yeah, I guess there's a danger there of losing my individual voice or my judgment of being able to filter out what I include in a a written piece of work or an artwork or an illustration. Um, yeah, very interesting conundrum. So I guess watch this space maybe. Yeah, it's almost like you are, uh, you are starting to, to serve plastic, plastic food that looks amazing, but <laughs> is, it, is it food? <laughs> plastic cabbages. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, that's what signs will become. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we don't get to a Soylent Green situation. That, that would be... <laughs> That'd be not good. Awesome. Well, it has been awesome to have you on today, Eddie. Thank you for shedding light on the optimistic things about chat. Yeah, it's just been cool to hear your opinion. And for anyone who is interested, you can read more about his article in The March Issue, which has just come out, which will soon be online as well. So thank you again, Eddie. It's lovely to talk with you both. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media Podcast.